So take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to turn open to the book of Philemon. It's a little tiny book in the New Testament, so no embarrassment. Uh, if you have trouble finding it, it comes after all the T's. So if you hit the Timothys and Titus, it comes right after that. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. So Hebrews is that big book. They're in the latter half of the New Testament. Philemon is tucked right in front of that. This morning, I'm going to read the entire book, and we're going to look at the entire book together of Philemon. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's are online in the Fellowship Hall in here. Let's unite our hearts together in prayer before we open the Word. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your Word. And we pray that we would sit under it with listening ears and open hearts this morning. And we pray that you would not neglect us. You would not neglect your promises. That your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish its purposes in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in the able and strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Philemon, the entire book, this is the holy and errant word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Obviously, I can't delve into all the particulars of this book this morning, but what I want to do as we look at Philemon together is draw out some principles for you that I think would be helpful in the time that we're in. I have never done this before. Um, In close to 20 years of ministry, I have never preached the same sermon to the same congregation. But I'm doing that this morning. Uh, I preached this sermon to you about four years ago. Now, I've changed it quite a bit. Someone was showing me their Bible after the first service this morning and all the points from my sermon four years ago written in their Bible, and they're different. Uh, But they overlap and are very similar. But the reason I'm doing so is because these principles have been going through my mind over this last year And even into this year, as we have been wrestling through the different challenges of 2020. And I think it would be helpful for you and I to hear them in our current context, uh, because they should come to bear a lot more readily. Because the reality is, is that we have all been facing conflict. Uh, As we have been going through this faith focus, you'll be reminded that we are doing united in our witness, and this is the fourth week. This week, what we're looking at is united in reconciliation. Pastor Kevin did the last two weeks and blessed us, and I preached the first week. Um, But this week, we are doing united in reconciliation. And all of us have experienced some kind of fragmentation in our lives and in relationships over this last year. Some of you have fragmented relationships in this church as a result of what has happened over this last year. Some of you have it in your families, and all of us have it in some degree or another with with our culture and the things that have been occurring within it. We have all suffered through disharmony and disunity. There is a positive to all this. If we didn't care deeply, we wouldn't feel deeply, and there wouldn't be division. So there is a positive here. But where there is fracturing, we as Christians are to be concerned with reconciliation. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to bypass the issue. That doesn't mean that we are to to sweep the issue under the rug. Paul is not doing that here In the book of Philemon, but it does mean that in the body of Christ that we are to be passionate, passionate about seeking reconciliation and seeing peace sown. Why? Because the body 
And peace in the body matters to our Lord, and it matters to our witness. I think of the Lord Jesus and that longest prayer, recorded prayer that we have of Jesus there in John 17. What is the thrust of that prayer? It is unity in his body. When he's speaking to the disciples and he's speaking to them about their witness before unbelievers, and he says, unbelievers will know you. They'll know you how. How is it that unbelievers will know that you and I are different? Well, it's when they look upon us and Jesus says they will know you by your love for one another. And so we're passionate. We're passionate about reconciliation. We're passionate about peace because it matters to our Lord and it matters to our witness. Not feign peace, not shallow peace. You know, Lord Jesus says there in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And to paraphrase a theologian, if peacemakers are called the sons of God, division sowers have a different father altogether. We care about peace. And real reconciliation requires real conversation, and that takes real effort. And I believe, at least on my part, as I think about this, I look at the Scriptures and I think the book of Philemon is a masterpiece in this regard. Because Paul is taking the messiest of circumstances and he is modeling before you and I what it looks like to pursue reconciliation. I mean, you think about the circumstances of this letter. You have Paul, who is in prison in Rome, and he is writing to the church in Colossae, a church that he had pastored and that he had preached before, and he's writing there to Philemon, who is a Christian who is a slave owner. And he's writing to Philemon, the slave owner, about Onesimus. Onesimus, one of Philemon's slaves. A slave who had ran away from Philemon and it appears had stolen things of Philemon as he ran away. But it gets even more messy than that. This Onesimus makes his way to Rome where Paul was at, which isn't so strange. The, a slave escaping at this time would have tried to make their way into a major city where they could hide in the crowd. But what is amazing is that he makes his way to Rome, this large city, and we don't know how or why, but in some way he crosses paths with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul shares the gospel with him. And he's one to saving faith. And so here you have Paul sitting in prison in Rome, sending back this slave to his slave master, and they are both Christians. It makes COVID and politics look like child's play. This is a mess beyond a mess. And I think there are great principles to pull out of this letter and how to approach reconciliation with one another. I want to lead us through what I'm going to call the ABCs of reconciliation in this letter. I'm going to go A through F. I'm sparing you going all the way to Z. Just A through F. So you can be happy this morning. First, A, affection. 
affection. He makes first, in all clarity, his affection, Paul does as he writes, his affection for the Lord Jesus, but not just his affection for the Lord Jesus. He makes clear his affection for Philemon, and that will provide the foundation for everything, everything that Paul says from here on out in the letter. Verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Why? Ah, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Verse 7, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I love the Apostle Paul. I love him for his boldness. I love him for his mind. I mean, you, you think about his mind and you think, you read the book of Romans and you begin to delve into some of the depths of Paul's mind and it's just astounding. Or you think about his boldness in the book of Acts as he stands before Felix or he stands before Festus and what incredible boldness he demonstrates. But what I probably love about Paul more than anything else is the affection that he shows towards others and the way that he builds them up. Here's the super apostle. He's the, the great apostle to the Gentiles. He is the writer of half of the New Testament, if not more. And he's constantly going out of his way to affirm others. Now, you don't get that from worldly leaders. That's below them. That seems to be a sign of weakness to affirm others. But not for Paul. I was doing uh, some training with uh, some of the men of our church yesterday morning, and I was having us read through Acts 20, and it was a fascinating chapter where Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders on the beach, and he knows that he's never going to see them again, chapter 20 of Acts. And in that one chapter, we're told that Paul cried three times. He says that he, when he was among them, he preached night and day with tears. He says that he prays for them with weeping. And then we see him weeping with them on the beach as he's getting ready to leave them. And you say, Paul, where did your man card go? But you see, this is a man who loves. And he has no problem showing them how much he loves them. And they know that he loves them. In our context, notice that before he offers a rebuke, before he offers a correction, before he seeks any sort of reconciliation, before he even, even mentions it, Paul celebrates Philemon. He doesn't flatter him, but he makes clear his affection for him and his thankfulness for him. He is saying true things about Philemon, how God is working through him, how he refreshes the souls of the saints. What a great man of God he has proven to be. And whether you are serving as a mediator as Paul is between two other parties, or whether you are approaching someone that has offended you, or whether you are approaching someone that you have offended, this is the first giant step you should take. You affirm. 
again, it isn't flattery. Flattery isn't evil. I mean, flattery is evil, but affection isn't. It's good. It's good. I told you when preaching this to you three or four years ago that uh, about 20 years ago, in our marriage, Lee and I laid down a rule. We laid down the rule because I made such a mess of things as a husband. I would charge in and say, okay, we are going to settle this, and we're going to be reconciled in this, or this needs to improve in our family. And uh, About 20 or so years ago, we decided before we offer any kind of exhortation to one another, or we challenge one another, or maybe in the midst of when we're having a hard conversation, we utter the words, I love you, I'm for you, I'm not against you. Just affection that lays the groundwork. For now, we can talk about the issue that's at hand. We're on the same team here. I love you. If you don't have affection for the other person or the people that you're confronting, don't seek reconciliation because it won't work. If we look at this letter, we get 145 words into this letter of only 335 words before Paul even mentions the name Onesimus. And yet Onesimus is the reason for the letter. He gets halfway through the letter before he even mentions his name. Affection. Be. Beseech. Now, I know that's an old word. We don't use that word, but it works for my ABC, so work with me here. Beseech. Don't demand. Paul doesn't hear. He doesn't demand from Philemon. He appeals to Philemon. Paul could have commanded Philemon to accept Onesimus back. He says in verse 8, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you. Fear doesn't stop him. Wisdom does. Paul says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He beseeches him. If someone had the right to demand of Philemon, surely it was Paul. He is this great super apostle. He's not only this great super apostle, he is also the Philemon's pastor, but he's not just Philemon's pastor, he's also the person that brought Philemon to saving faith. He says in verse 19, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. But Paul knows that demanding won't achieve what he desires here. He's not looking for wooden obedience. He's looking for something more profound. He's looking for true reconciliation. Demanding won't get you anywhere. Because you can never force someone else to truly reconcile. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. And so he beseeches. Reconciliation in the body of Christ doesn't work without love. It's like having... A lake without water, that's nonsensical. That doesn't make any sense. It isn't logical. And Paul knows that love must come first, and so he beseeches. He asks Philemon to, to, to will it on account of his love. 
He does the same thing in Philippians 4. You remember that church in Philippi is is divided. There has been fracturing there. And you have Eudea and Syntyche, these two women in the church, and they are in some kind of conflict. We don't know why or what it was over, but it appears that the entire church has divided and they've lined up either behind Eudea or behind Syntyche. And Paul doesn't say, look, on my apostolic authority, I say to you, stop it. Get over it. Be reconciled to one another and let's move on. He doesn't do that. Instead, he beseeches them. He says, I ask you to agree in the Lord. He's reminding them of of Christ. And he's asking that to inform their relationship to one another. He beseeches them. See. Consider the other. Consider the other. Affection, beseech, see, consider the other. Surely this is the reason that Paul is so slow in approaching Philemon with his request. He doesn't just have the problem in mind. He has Philemon in mind. And so he's slow in his approach. And that that makes all the world a difference when we're offended or when we are mediating conflict between two people. I think about Philemon in this letter, and I think this is probably, though we don't know, it's probably the first time he's even heard of Onesimus again since Onesimus ran away. And what would it have been like with Onesimus now showing up on his doorstep with this letter from the Apostle Paul, and Philemon opens this letter from the Apostle Paul, and it begins with, Philemon, I command you to take back Onesimus. He would have bridled at that. But Paul doesn't do that. He understands people. He considers the other person. Some of you won't like this, but it's not just the truth in the moment that matters. You can hammer the truth, but if you forget that the other person is a person, your truth will seldom, seldom hit the heart or grip it. That takes effort, though. It's much easier for us to approach a conflict and clearly assess what needs to be done and dictate the answer. We can see the answer so clearly. We just need to hammer it home to the other person. But that seldom ends in the desired result. Why? Because there are personalities involved. There's feelings involved. There's people involved. Tact is actually a good thing. You consider the other person. D, direct attention to the gospel. Direct attention to the gospel. Affection, beseech, consider, direct. You'll notice how Paul appeals to him as 
his fellow brother in the gospel, his partner in ministry, as he calls him in verse 17. In fact, he reminds Philemon multiple times in the first seven verses that he is a child of God, that he is a recipient of grace. And then he will continue to multiply that for the last half of the letter as well. He is bringing him back over and over to the gospel. Reconciliation in the body of Christ always flows from our reconciling Savior. Philemon, as if Paul is saying, you've received grace. You've received gospel grace. You've received gospel forgiveness. You've received gospel love. And that means that you are to live in light of that. Love, how Paul says it in Ephesians 4, communicating the same idea, directing us to the gospel. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, all that conflict. And then the positive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and then the grounds for why you should act that way towards one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You're forgiven. You've received gospel grace. And so you can have gospel strength and gospel love to extend such gospel grace and forgiveness. love that little phrase he uses in verse 8, laying down his appeal to Philemon. He, he says to him that he could command, quote, what is required. You bristle at that. Whoa, Paul, what's required? Over the years, I've sat with countless husband and wives, Christian husbands and wives that... Uh, have suffered a lot at each other's hands. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of grief. And often in those meetings when we're sitting together, one or both spouses want there to be a division. They, they want to look at separating and divorcing. And most times it's not on firm biblical grounds. There isn't warrant for it. I could, as Paul said, I have no problem in exercising boldness and being bold, as Paul says, and saying, look, you have no option. You have to stay together. Now get over it and get on. But that hasn't produced the fruit. I found over the years sitting with a husband and wife in such circumstances that it often helps just to go back to the gospel and for us to read through the gospel together. It's really in many ways no fault of, of the spouse or both spouses that you get injured, you get hurt, you... You are grieving, and you begin to put that 
that iron door across your heart and just kind of sealed off. It's a protection. It's a mechanism to protect yourself. You just don't want to be hurt anymore. And I find that iron door, it, it, it doesn't come off by, by demanding. I find, though, that as we go back to the gospel often and we're having the conversation about the gospel and what we have received in Christ and what he has done for us and how he empowers us, I find that that door, it doesn't swing open. It's not as if it just goes off its hinges. But it just becomes a little crack. It just cracks a little bit open. And a little gospel light, a little gospel love, a little gospel forgiveness seeps in. And now you have the beginnings of reconciliation. Now we have something to work from. It points them to the gospel. It has within it the balm for all of our hurts. I wonder if you believe the gospel is sufficient. Martin Luther said this about the gospel, talking about the fact that it has, a, it has a freeing and it also has a binding effect upon the Christian. And he said this, a Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. And a Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owing a duty to everyone. Isn't that one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life? The paradoxes of the gospel, we are free by God's grace and we are bound to act because of God's grace. We're a slave to none, but then we are a slave to all. We have been set free from duty and obligation, yet now all duty is required of us. Oh, Philemon, you have been set free by Christ, you have received gospel grace. You have received forgiveness. You've been set free. And now you've been set free to extend gospel grace and to extend forgiveness and to extend gospel love. Direct to the gospel. Affection, beseech, consider the other. Direct to the gospel. E, eternity. Eternity. Christian reconciliation takes into account eternity. And notice how Paul does this in the book of Philemon. He finally makes the appeal in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And then he multiplies it in verse 17. He says, so if you consider me your partner... Receive him as you would receive me. Again, he doesn't shy away from the issue at hand. He's not sweeping the issue under the rug. He's not saying that there's nothing here that should be the cause of conflict. He's just putting it all in context. And how does he do that? It's like he's taking a step back. He's saying, I know Onesimus is standing right before your face. I know that he stole from you. I know that he ran away from you. 
And he could be saying to Onesimus, I know that Philemon was your slave master and you're standing face to face. Now let's take a step back. And let's look at this in light of eternity. Receive him, Philemon. Receive not simply Onesimus, his former slave, but now Onesimus, your brother in Christ. You are now brothers for all of eternity. And that's to affect what happens here on out. Reconciliation isn't just supposed to be a possibility or something that we tepidly desire as Christians. It's necessary for the Christian. Reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ is necessary for the Christian. Paul's relaying this idea that he is now a brother, that they are in the same family. He makes it clear in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child. He we use that term over and over in his letters about those that Paul himself led to saving faith in his ministry. He says of Titus in Titus 1, my true child in a common faith. He calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He says to the Galatian church, my little children. Paul is now Onesimus' father, even as he is Philemon's father, because he has led them both to saving faith, which makes them brothers. I have a, a little routine uh, that I do with my kids. I uh, started when they were probably three or four years old. And when they are fighting or squabbling, I will call them to myself. And I will have them stand in front of me. And I ask the same question every time. I say, what are you? And they both answer together, we are brother and sister and then we all three say together, brothers and sisters don't fight. Now, of course they fight or there wouldn't be the need for reconciliation. But Paul's point is, they shouldn't fight. They have the greatest thing in common. They're united in Christ to one another. Now, listen, we're going to disagree. If we don't disagree sometimes, some of us are unnecessary. We have to disagree sometimes, but we don't fight. That shouldn't be found among us. We're family eternally. Paul wants Philemon to receive him back, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17, receive him as you would receive me. He is to be honored, Philemon. He is to be loved, Philemon. He is to be welcomed. He's your brother for eternity. You remember... In the Gospels, when Jesus is teaching in that house, and you remember that Mary and Jesus' brothers show up outside, and they're trying to make their way to Jesus through the crowd, and you remember that word begins to, to communicate through the crowd that they're there, and someone yells out to Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are here, and do you remember Jesus' response? 
I imagine him looking over the crowd. The text doesn't tell us this, but I imagine him taking his hand and just kind of waving it like this over the crowd. And he says, those who do the will of my heavenly father, they are my mothers and brothers and sisters. And surely, at least in part, the will of our heavenly father is to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is what children of the heavenly father look like. As we think upon eternity, we think about it in this way. I, I think about it just like it, it lifts our eyes higher. This is what I've thought an awful lot over this last year, and as we've wrestled through all of these different things that are such touch points for conflict and for disagreement and for maligning and for having malice towards one another, this is what has often gone through my mind, is seeing these things in light of eternity. Paul offers a very interesting comment in verse 15. He says that Onesimus may have been predestined to run away from Philemon so that he might now have him back, not just as a bondservant, but now as a brother and a brother for all of eternity. Now, Paul, he, he doesn't say that this is definitely the reason that Onesimus ran away. He's not going to take God's providence and say this is the reason that this occurred, but he's willing to take a step back and he's willing to say, look, this difficulty that has come into your life, Philemon, could it possibly be that the Lord orchestrated this for your good and not just your good, but for your eternal good? And isn't that often the case? It's when it's disrupted, when we have life disrupted, that God is working for our greatest eternal good. And so Paul was just helping him just to take a step back. Oh, I think of it like a, a camera with that zoom lens. You know, you zoom in on the thing, and you can only see the thing itself, and, and it helps just to zoom back because you lose perspective when you're zoomed in. It becomes so big, that issue, that person, that thing, that conflict, those people, those leaders, it just becomes kind of all-consuming in the mind's eye, and you lose perspective. This is why we're often so troubled when someone else doesn't seem quite as troubled as we are about this or that thing, and this culture is rife with this sentiment right now canceled if you don't have the same vehemence or the same vitriol or the same concern as someone else? Why don't they care about this issue like I do? Why haven't they sp spoken to it? Can't they see how important this is? They may see it as important. They just might not be as zoomed in as you are upon it. And being zoomed in on a thing is dangerous. I remember seeing a, a picture, uh, this was a few years ago, of a, that was used in social media and in news stories, and it was used by a bunch of different news outlets, and I think it first came out in the AP. 
I'm not exactly sure. I tried to find it last night and couldn't find it. They probably scrubbed it from everywhere. But it was a, a picture of a fire in a street. And it was representing, it was talking about all the riots that had happened. I don't remember where it was, but in this city. And they were talking about how people were burning things down. And it showed this fire in the middle of the street. And they used this image all over the place. It came out a couple of weeks after that. I remember reading a story where someone showed the real picture zoomed out. That fire was only six inches tall and one foot across. But they had zoomed in on it. They lost perspective. Except the whole city was burning down. There's danger in that. Take a step back. We keep eternity in view. That doesn't minimize the importance of the thing before us because often that issue at hand or that conflict or this thing that we are debating or discussing, it is very important. That pain is very important, but it puts it in perspective. And you and I, friend, need perspective. Eternal perspective. Finally, as we seek to be united in our witness and reconciled to one another, F, be faith-filled. Faith-filled. Paul is faith-filled. He's hopeful that there will be reconciliation here. This may be the most difficult part of reconciliation, just believing that reconciliation is possible. But Paul believes it. Verse 21 I'm confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Don't, don't we often think we're in the midst of it? Why even bother? There won't be reconciliation here. We won't agree, and maybe not, but they won't forgive me, and I don't think that they'll ask for forgiveness, and I can't forgive them. We're just too far gone, but not in Paul's mind. He's hopeful. He's hopeful because he knows the power of Christ's love and he knows the power of that love at work in a man. He believes the gospel. Be hope-filled. Be hope-filled about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And approach reconciliation with that kind of confidence and hope. I think... This is one of the best examples of pursuing reconciliation. I think these principles are very helpful that we see in this letter. You know, and as Paul does this, he, he paints the picture and he'll do so in, in other letters in the New Testament. He does so in Galatians where he will talk about when this kind of mindset pervades the church and when this kind of attitude and ethic is dominant among God's people, then it actually looks like it's supposed to look like where he says there is no longer a barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, male or female, Gentile or Jew. But they're one. And they're united together in Christ. And that is what then exemplifies before our watching world the power of the gospel. 
And it is one of the greatest ways that you and I can affect the world that we dwell in is to know here reconciliation and love and peace and to pursue it with one another as we commit ourselves to the truth of Christ. The, the church is to be, as it were, a kind of little oasis in the middle of all of the human conflict in this world. It's here. So we stand upon Christ and we seek to live in light of Christ and impact the world around us. The ABCs, affection, beseech, consider the other, direct to the gospel, eternity in view, faith-filled hope. Let's be united in reconciliation and in our witness before the world. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God of reconciliation, that you have showered your peace upon men and the person of your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Prince of Peace, and that one day you will bring peace to all the earth, even as you have brought peace to our souls. We praise you, O Spirit, that the very fruit of your indwelling is peace. We pray that we would be a people that live in union with you, our triune God, and shine forth before one another and before our watching world. Our union in peace and reconciliation with one another, despite all our differences, despite all of our disagreements, and we are united in you and united to one another for all of eternity, and that shapes our living together and before the world. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.